0: In the earliest 20th century, during the rise of Nazi Germany and their state church, a pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he worked to help Jews flee the country. He helped to proclaim the truth against Hitler and what the Nazis were doing. Uh, he was part of what was called the Confessing Church, a church that, that stood to hold the truth and to their allegiance to Christ. This resistance came with a, a lot of risk as he went about things illegally in terms of the laws of the land, he eventually was found out, thrown in prison, and then he was hung. But what's interesting is that Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to stay in America. He was doing like a lecture circuit or as a guest lecturer. He had, a, he had a, an opportunity to stay safe in America at that time, but he wanted to go back. He was determined to go back to, to suffer the hardships with the people in order to help lead them and care for them. And one of the books that Bonhoeffer wrote during this time was called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, uh, Bonhoeffer goes on, he talks about what he said is the deadly enemy of our church. And he he called that cheap grace. Cheap grace. And that was the idea that following Jesus just meant to, to say that you were a Christian. And that was about it. There wasn't any kind of change that really was necessary or any kind of fruit or anything much like that, as if the grace that you receive, the cheap grace, has no effect on your life. He wrote this. He said, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession." Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And then in contrast, what he would call is costly grace. And that's the idea, one, it was very costly for Jesus that this grace, this free grace that we get, it's free, completely free. It was very costly for Jesus. And yet it's costly for us in the sense of what it, it, it demands of us, our life. We're saved by faith alone, by grace alone alone. But that grace, there's more. There's there's a lot to that, and this is not legalism. It's what James says. God, uh, God inspires James about faith without works is dead. It's what Martin Luther he summarized as we're saved by faith alone, no question. But that faith that saves is never alone. It's a faith that constantly repents. It's a faith that obeys. The characteristic of saving faith is that it does follow Christ. Uh, bonhoeffer he writes this about costly grace it is the treasure hidden in the field for For the the sake sake of it a man will go and sell all that he has it is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods it is the kingly rule of christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble it is the call of jesus christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. And so what we see here is this discipleship. The life of a Christian, our lives as we follow Christ, is by grace alone, period. But this is costly grace. It's a grace that follows Christ. And again, this isn't legalism. Legalism, the idea that we can earn God's favor by doing things. That's not what this is. That's not what Bonhoeffer is saying. That's not what James says in James 2. And that's not what Jesus says in our passage this morning. It's describing this character of faith that we're saved by. It is a faith affected by grace alone that obeys and it it repents. It continues. Now, I I say all this, and we're looking at our passage this morning because there's a lot in American Christianity that does not teach this, does not teach Christ as Lord, does not teach that following him means that he is the authority that we're not. Rather, a lot of what we see in different books is that Jesus is all about self-fulfillment. That's what it means to follow Christ. It's about self. It's about uh, how we feel. It's about uh, the different experiences we have. And that's not what the pastors we see this morning. That's not all what Jesus says. It means to follow him. And so we see that this passage this morning, that following Jesus is not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. But the last thing I want, the last thing I want for us this morning is for us to leave, to consider this high cost of, fellow, uh, of discipleship And lose sight of the gospel, that is the absolute last thing that we want this morning. Not for a second do we want our eyes to turn away from the glorious truth that through faith alone, by grace alone, that we we as Christians are declared righteous in God's sight because of Jesus alone. I do not want us to lose sight of that. Not for a moment that we are not saved at all by what we do, but by grace alone through Christ alone. I do not want us to lose sight that this grace is indeed unmerited favor. We did not do anything. It was all God's doing. And because of this, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper afterwards. This, this foundation, it's all grace. It is all God's doing. It is all the gospel. And so we're going to keep this in the proper context, that it is by grace alone. It's not a cheap grace, though. It's a costly grace. And so with that foundation of grace, let's consider what it means for you and me to follow Christ. So if you have not already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 that, that Bob read for us. And as Bob went through a little bit, just a reminder of the, the context, the passage last week, we saw Jesus ask his disciples, who do the crowds say I am? And then the answer, and what they've been hearing, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe a different prophet. And then Jesus says, well, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter, for the group, confesses, you are the Christ of God. And our passage picks up right after that. And Jesus will now respond with a statement that probably, uh, by probably, I mean, by very, for sure, caught the disciples completely off guard, completely surprised. Verse 21, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. So Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. What what Peter just said here, he says, don't tell anyone. The obvious question is why? I mean, if you want people to follow you, this would be the way to do it. People would want to follow you if you are the Messiah, the Christ. But we see within the context here that Jesus does not want them to tell others right now because the people misunderstand what it means that he is the Christ. Uh, Back in John chapter 6, I believe that's where John records the feeding of the 5,000, which is in our passage, the context of our passage. And then Luke, I mean, I'm sorry, then John, he records that right after this, Jesus perceives that the crowds are trying to make him king. They're about to to anoint him, that he is the king. Basically because he's feeding us food, he's healing everyone, let's anoint him king, and so he can overthrow the Romans, and then here we go. Right? I mean, they just saw Jesus feed 5,000. So if you've got an army, he's got the food. He's been healing people. If someone gets injured, he'll heal them. It's like, who can stop this guy? No doubt they're thinking this. This is, this is him. This is the king. We're going to do this finally. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. He has come to reign, no question. But his, his reign will be manifest not through political wars, but through the spread of the gospel as life after life, after life is transformed on every level. So Jesus told them, don't tell anyone, because the Messiah first must suffer. He must first suffer. He must first be crucified, because without that, there is no good news. And so Jesus shares this with his disciples, verse 22. So he's saying, don't tell people that I'm the Christ, saying, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus says what must happen to him?" In your translation, uh, I didn't check them all, but yours might say it is necessary. Like this must happen is what Jesus is saying. So far in Luke, we've seen this kind of statement twice, both from the mouth of Jesus. The first one is when Jesus was a little boy in the temple, and he says, I must be in my father's house. The second one is in Luke 4, when the people are trying to keep him, and Jesus says, I must go to the other towns and proclaim the word. And so we've seen this must of Jesus, that I must do this. And now we see here, Jesus says four things he must do. One, he must suffer. Two, he must be rejected. Three, he must be killed. And four, he must be raised. It is absolutely necessary and nothing's going to stop him. In fact, in Luke 9, uh, we'll get to it towards the end of Luke 9. It's a complete change in the direction of what Luke has been building up to. It just, it's a complete turn. Because we see that Jesus, he now heads to Jerusalem. He moves to Jerusalem. He is focused on going to Jerusalem. Why? Because it's there that he'll be betrayed. He'll suffer. He'll have a false trial. He'll be crucified and then he'll raise. And he's focused on that. We'll see that. It's a big shift in Luke chapter 9. This must happen. This is his mission. Number one, he must suffer. Why? Because all humanity, we, before Christ, we oppose God. We cannot stand it that God has come. And dwells with us. We can't stand it. But he came anyway to save his people. And we see this in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the suffering of the Messiah. Two, he must be rejected for the same reason. We can't stand having God with us. Why? Jesus kind of explains in John chapter 3, right after the three, John 3.16 that we're familiar with. He goes on to talk about how the light has come into the world and men hate the light because they love darkness. They love their sin. That's why we hate God. Speaking about before we are Christ and other people, the lost hate God because they love their sin. And so Christ must be rejected. And Jesus says specifically these three groups: uh, the elders, the chief priests, and scribes. And who these are? These people make up the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council. And at that time, it's, it's the ruling body of Judea, uh, um, Judaism, the Romans let the Jews have this council to decide different affairs dealing with Judaism. Uh, we see clearly that they don't have all authority because they had to go to Pontius Pilate, the Roman official, in order to crucify Jesus. So they don't have all control, but they have some control. And Jesus is saying, I must be rejected by them. Jesus will willingly suffer rejection in order to, for us, those who believe, to be accepted by God. Third, he must be killed. He must die. I think about this uh, December, the month, and we're celebrating the coming of the incarnate God, the God man Jesus, the little boy in the manger. And the truth is, that little baby boy must die. He must die. In order for us to live, that baby boy must die. And then, fourth, he says, he must be raised. He must be raised as a conqueror of sin and death. Paul says in Romans 4 that Jesus was raised for our justification. Meaning that Jesus was raised so that those of us who believe in Christ may be counted righteous, declared righteous by God. When God sees us through faith, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ and we're seen as perfect. We're declared as perfect. All of our sins forgiven. But when the disciples heard this, they must have thought this was insane. This is foolish talk. This is the Christ. What are you talking about, Jesus? But Jesus says, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I must be raised. And praise God. Praise God. Praise God that little boy in the manger that we celebrate this month. Praise God that he will suffer. Praise God that he will be rejected. Praise God that he will die a horrible death. And praise God he'll be raised because it's for us. It's for us he suffered. It's for us he was rejected. It was for us he died. For us he was raised. And with that, we have glorious blessing. Blessing upon blessing in Jesus Christ. So yes, praise God that he must go about this. Uh, Ignore Sawyer (laughs) on the other side there. But amen. This is good news. This is horrible news if you see the perspective of the disciples hearing that the Christ, the Messiah. Everyone's focused on a sir. Come back here. Everyone focused. I'm distracted too. All right. Where were we? (laughs) The disciples are just hearing that their leader is going to die a horrible death. They must think this is what is he talking about? We're done. What is he talking about? But for us, after the fact, we know, praise God, that this is going to happen. Praise God. This is going to be horrible. This is going to be a gruesome execution. But praise God, because from it, we get amazing blessing. So the one we follow, Jesus Christ, he must suffer. And it's from right here that Jesus turns. Okay, so what does it mean for his followers? What does it mean for us who follow him? And we see that there's a great cost. There's a great cost for our freedom from sin that Jesus paid at a great cost. There's a cost of following him. And we'll see in our passage, the cost is death to self, denying self. Verse 23. So this is just after Jesus said, I'm going to suffer. Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone, anyone would come after me, and these are commands, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus summarizes discipleship. You and me, what does it mean to follow Christ today, after church, tomorrow morning, at school, at work, uh, when we get home to the household? What does that mean? Jesus says, it means you die to self, you deny yourself. That's what it means to follow Christ. To come after Jesus means to deny. It's to deny that you are the authority. To follow Christ means to deny that your dreams and your desires are the goal. To deny what you want and experience is God's will. To follow Christ means to deny that your feelings dictate what is right. Following Christ means to deny yourself. And we see that this is the essence of the first step, if if I will, of saving faith, is that we deny ourselves that we have any ability to save ourselves. We completely deny that I can't do it. In fact, we realize as we trust in Christ, that we, you, are the problem, in fact. You are the problem, but God has come to save you and he's come to save me. I'm the problem. So we we see that this, this denial of self is in the first saving faith as well as we continue that fallen Christ is a denial of self. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's famous for saying this, when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids that man to come and die. When Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids the man to come and die. Because following Jesus it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about his authority, not yours, not mine. It's about his glory is the goal, not your reputation, not mine. His will is the focus, not yours, not mine. And obedience to him is the means and not some other form that we want. So to follow Jesus means to die yourself. And then the second command is... Following Jesus means to take up your cross daily. Take up your cross daily, and I'm not saying this is Jesus, and this is this is heavy. Uh, reading this is very heavy. Every Jew under the Roman Empire would have known what that meant. The cross represented horrible execution. It was it was popular. It wasn't uh, like that was not that it was that uncommon. It was very popular. And it was a very public spectacle. The person being executed uh, almost always would carry the crossbeam to the place they're going to be executed. And people watched. And the place of their death was almost always a very public place to show that, hey, this is what happens when you go against the Roman Empire. This is what happens to you. And so you die a gruesome death with everyone watching. So if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to endure hatred, hostility, rejection, opposition, reproach, slander, shame, and even death because that's exactly what it means, the cross means. To follow Jesus means to walk the road of rejection and the opposition from others. In Matthew 10, Matthew's account of what Jesus is saying here, he includes Jesus saying that anyone who does not take up the cross is not worthy of me. Jesus says that. But then we see in Luke 6, if you remember, Luke said, but those who are hated and reviled and shamed and excluded for his sake, they are blessed. If you remember Jesus saying that back in Luke 6. So if you're hearing this, like you're like me, and you're like, wow, this does not sound very good. Yep. following Jesus may actually make your time on earth far worse far, far worse than what it could be. There's a good chance it will. But following Jesus means denying self. Take up your cross. And Jesus says, daily. This is an everyday thing. There's no holidays, no vacations, no weekends, no sick days. It's a battle each day. It's a cross bearing each day. And if we're honest, it gets extremely exhausting. Extremely exhausting. And that is exactly why we need God's grace. It's exactly why we gather Here on the Lord's Day, we gather because we need each other to encourage, to build each other up, to exhort. We need, as we gather together, to partake the Lord's Supper. That's why we're here, because it's exhausting and it's not easy, and we need each other. So Jesus says, following Him. What does that actually mean? It means deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and then follow Him. And this last command is kind of a a full uh, scope, as well as you follow Him, you obey Him. You die to following yourself. You die to following what other people want or, or what the world wants. And you follow Jesus Christ as he commands. And again, this isn't legalism. This is discipleship. This is what it means to follow Christ. If you remember the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what? teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Discipleship is teaching people to follow Christ, to obey Christ. Not to earn God's grace, not at all. That's a false gospel, but we do it out of gratitude. We do it because we are following the one who's died for us. If you remember back in Luke 6, Jesus said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Uh, You might think, well, what about loving God? Yep, that's right in there. That's where we, we obey God from, is from a loving heart. In John chapter 14, over three times Jesus says, if you love me, you obey what I command. If you love me, you obey what I command. If you love me, you obey what I command. Jesus, it's very clear what it means to love God. What about loving others? Exactly, amen. That comes from a heart fallen Christ. John, twice in his first letter, First John, in his second letter, Second John, he equates loving others by obeying what God has commanded. So falling Jesus means denying yourself, And following him. His will, not your own. Following Jesus means your independent life, it's over. It's done. You've given that up. Your life is not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus Christ. And so we see that if you want to follow Jesus, you need to know what it costs. It's not pretty, it's not soft, it's not easy. That's very clear when he talks about the cross. Uh, it's easy to, to come to church and say we're a Christian, uh, especially in America. It's, it's pretty easy just to say that. It's pretty easy to um, to not say many hard things, but just just kind of be nice. It's pretty easy to, to even just to kind of skip over certain things in the Bible that we may not really like very much. It's pretty easy to follow Christ when we think that all that means is, is focus on us and not much beyond that. But it's not easy at all to proclaim the truth that people desperately need to hear, but they hate it. It's not easy to actually study the Word of God and to know what He wants of us, what He commands of us. It's not easy to live your marriage how God commands. It's not easy to, parent your, to raise your kids how God commands. It is not easy to give up your dreams for what God commands. It is not easy to follow Christ when it means a death to self. Death to how you think should be done, how you think things should be done—a death to yourself to follow Christ. And so we see here that death to self is essentially what it means to follow Christ: dying to self and turning and following Jesus as Lord. And then Jesus explains in verse 24 that if you do the opposite, if you were to live for yourself, it results in you losing your life. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So if if, instead of denying yourself, you live for yourself what you want, what your dreams are, what your goals are, if you you focus on that, Jesus says you will lose your life. You're going to lose in the end. You may have a great life. You may have nice cars. You may have a comfy bank account. You may be able to do a great vacations. Do, uh, do everything you dream about. But you will lose in the end, Jesus says. You will lose in the end. The martyred missionary to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, you may be familiar. He's, he's well known for writing this. He said this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So you're not a fool, Jesus says, and as Jim Elliot reiterates here, you're not a fool to give up your life for Christ, what you want, because you're gaining life which you cannot lose because it's safe with Christ. But you are a fool. If you seek what you cannot even keep, this life, all that you want, your dreams, all that, without even considering what God commands, you're a fool. And Jesus explains this, verse 26. For whoever, this may be the most frightening thing, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I don't know a more frightening promise than that. If you're ashamed of Jesus and his words, he will be ashamed of you when he returns. There's a high cost of following Jesus. A rejection, opposition, probably not a good time. Uh, situation, probably getting worse. But there's a far, far greater cost of not following Jesus. Jesus says that he will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him and his words. And so we see within here, there's an assumption That you will be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and his words, right? Why would he say that? There's no temptation to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. Uh, Why? Because almost everything Jesus says flies in the face of the world. What Jesus commands and declares as truth, the world hates. Jesus says there's only one way. There is absolutely only one way to make things right, to be right with God, and that's through repenting and trusting in Christ. Repentance and faith. And the world hates that, despises that. Jesus says, uh, commands about your money, about your marriage, about parenting, about work, about everything. And the, and the, the world hates that. And so we, can, we will be tempted, Jesus is assuming here, you will be tempted to just bow down, acquiesce to what the world says, what the world values And to be ashamed of Jesus and his words. And being ashamed, I want to say just for a few seconds, being ashamed of Jesus and his words does not necessarily mean you won't name Jesus or share his word. That doesn't mean that. It means you only share the things that are easy to hear. You only share the things and talk about the things that the world finds acceptable. Acceptable. Being ashamed of Jesus then might mean that you, you talk about uh, Jesus' love and his grace and mercy and praise God, but you never talk about the requirement of repentance, the requirement of death to self, that Jesus is coming to judge the world, that Jesus is coming. And there's judgment for those who do not repent and seek and find and solace and comfort in God's grace. Elizabeth Charles, she wrote about this about Martin Luther. She said this If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. If you boldly proclaim the love of Christ and the grace of Christ and amen, praise God, and that's what we should do, but yet you are not proclaiming the truth in the areas where the battle actually is raging right now in our world, such as sexuality, marriage, gender roles, parenting, truth, abortion, hell, if we're not proclaiming truth in that area, it's hard to think that we're not being ashamed of Jesus and his words, and Jesus says, the one who's ashamed of him in his words, he will be ashamed of you when he returns. And this is heavy, and this is very hard to hear. And Jesus ends with this, verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So after hearing, speaking of the disciples in this situation, after they hear that fallen Christ will be a hard path, it's going to be really hard, The cross, he speaks of the cross. There's opposition, there's rejection, there's even possibly death ahead of us. Then Jesus instills hope, this vision of hope. He says that they will not die until they see the kingdom of God. And what does this mean? He's saying, you will not die, some of you will not die until you see the beginnings of the kingdom of God. Begin to see this, this process of Jesus dominion and authority his kingdom because they will see his resurrection they will see his ascension they will see the sending of the spirit on pentecost they will see the gospel going forth in, the, in the, their area in jerusalem and samaria and and beyond they will get a taste of jesus glorious kingdom at the transfiguration which is just shortly after this and then some of them will potentially almost just one but some of them will See, God's judgment on Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which Jesus always, very frequently talks about, that he is coming and he's going to judge, specifically in A.D. 70 when he judges Jerusalem and it's connected to Jesus as the king. So Jesus is strengthening them. Yes, following him is incredibly difficult, incredibly, but if you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is who he says he is, that he is God, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lord then you will not be ashamed of him. If he is who he says he is, how can we deny him? How can we say, no, no, that that Jesus didn't say that, when in fact he did and he is Lord and we know and we're convinced that he is coming. He is coming. And so the strong conviction of Jesus as King and Lord, that will see us through this rejection. And so we see here that Christ... Through him, God offers us grace. And it's costly grace. It costed him a lot. It's not cheap. And the fallen Christ is costly. It's not easy at all. But as Jesus said, losing your life for his sake means life. It means eternal life. Because it's through Jesus' suffering, his rejection, his death, his resurrection, that we are forgiven. And in, in Christ christian you are forgiven it's done it is finished he said through faith you have received christ's perfect righteousness he has taken your unrighteousness what you've been doing this past week what you're doing today what are you doing this next week he's taken that and he has paid the price and you have received his righteousness through faith and god pours out blessing upon blessing as if you're the one that was perfectly righteous but it was Christ. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate this good news of Jesus Christ, who paid a hefty cost, but it's free grace to us, that God just he gives us to those who will, through faith, trust in Him. And so I'm going to invite the, the deacons forward. And as they're coming forward and getting things ready for the Lord's Supper, uh, I encourage us just to take a little time and reflect on this, this good news of Jesus Christ and what it means for you and me. So we'll take just a few minutes.